Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I'm here with Marina Hansen. How you doing, Marina? Hey, I'm doing well. We just recorded a podcast for Billy Newman Photo about um, the 360 video project we just did this weekend, which is really cool. We traveled everywhere, Marina. It was cool, right? Yeah, it was awesome. We rented the GoPro Fusion. Yeah, the Fusion camera is really interesting. I think it just came out in April. It does um, two 180-degree images that you then later stitch together to create an equirectilinear image or video that you can bring in to video editing software and view as a 360 degree virtualization of the, the place that you recorded. But it's really good. I think it does maybe the best out of many of the other cameras, like the Theta camera from Ricoh, or what is the other one? The Rilo camera that also just came out. So this GoPro camera is really, I think, state of the art for some of the 360 video production that people are going to be doing in the year 2018. A really interesting conversation that Marina and I had about uh, composition and storytelling elements that you can do with uh, 360 and uh, I guess some of the opportunities that are going to be out there. And man, some of the challenges too, right? Rendering yeah. takes an enormous amount of time. Huge amount of time. Yeah. Be ready for that. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I have an all right laptop. I'm doing okay with technology stuff, and oh, it's like it's like it reminds me of back in back in like the early 2000s, trying to render out AVIs on my old computer at home before YouTube, before all that stuff, trying to put it on a DVD. Ugh, it took forever. It took all night, which is what this this rendered all night yesterday for a four minute a video. four minute clip. Beautiful clip, though. It's really fun, actually. You know, it's totally yeah. worth it, it seems like. So. Absolutely worth it, but <laughs> it is it is worth A super long time. So on the podcast, we talk about some of the cool places we've gone to, some of the ideas about uh, composing stuff around waterfalls, uh, getting off the trail, getting away from the viewpoint, and uh, some of the other tips and tricks to uh, producing 360-degree content in 2018. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. And I uh, wanted to jump into a couple of the things I've been doing through the month of July and some of the outdoor camping and travel stuff I've been up to. Um, I was going to run down some of that in this uh, podcast today. I wanted to talk about a trip I did out toward eastern Oregon, uh, I think like last or what it was a week before last is when I was out in this area. And I was trying to, to get some good uh, observations in for Comet Neowise. I'm not sure if any of you guys got to check that out while it was uh, in its prime viewing section there. I think that was why we had uh, kind of like the new moon before it switched over to being a, a, a gibbous moon or a nearly full moon like it's been the last week or so. But I think, uh, what was it, around like the 15th through the 25th or so of July, there were some pretty good observations uh, to be made of, of Comet Neowise. And um, I guess after, after kind of reading about it a little bit, it's not considered a great comet like Hale-Bopp was, or uh, I think it was, was it Hay Hayutaki in 1996? We haven't had a great comet in a long time. I remember seeing those when I was a kid, though, and that was pretty cool, uh, like uh, watching Hale-Bopp come through for, it seemed like three months or something, you know, that you were just kind of looking at that in the uh, in the, the low 
corners of the northwestern and western sky as it was kind of cruising across the the skyline there i remember that still from from like third fourth grade when it was coming through and i also remember the year before that when uh when like straight up in the air you you know like straight up in the sky at night for it was only like a week or so i was a kid you know but i remember for that week you could see a real bright two-tailed comet that was going through i think i can't remember how to pronounce it. i think it's haitaki or i think it's some it's some japanese name uh, i'm pretty sure but that was a really cool one that that one i still remember really clearly and i you know i was only like i don't know seven or something when that like uh when when that comet came through but i really appreciate getting to make some observations of that one when i was a kid i missed haley's comet though back in what 87 i think was the last one it uh it came through and i probably will be the the few years or that you know that decade or two of of age range that doesn't get to see haley's comet in their lifetime so i think uh i think i was born in 88 of course so uh, if I make it past a hundred, maybe I'll see it. What is it? Maybe like eighty something years. So it's it's probably not going to come back around until I think it's like the two thousand seventies or two thousand eighties that I'd have to make it to for uh, to see Haley's comet again. It'd be fun, but uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll see how future how the you know the future is at that time. Um, but it was really cool to get to see comet Neo wise. It was uh, just a little below what would be the the legs and feet of Ursa Major, the Big Dipper, or uh, like the Big Bear, as it would kind of be observed. But if you if you kind of look at the the Dipper part that we're all mostly familiar with, uh, if you kind of consider Ursa Major the larger bear constellation that it's structured on, uh, if you kind of look down below the Dipper is where I was able to make my observations of Comet Neowise, and um, and over here in the at the elevation area that I'm at. In western Oregon, it's about 200 or 300 feet above sea level, and there's there's kind of a constant problem with haze and with uh, light pollution in this area. And I think it has to do something with, uh, uh, well, like, I mean, of course, you know, the amount of population that's around, and but also uh, it's, there's something about the air quality or about how the air kind of flows out around here that just doesn't ever seem to be as crisp or as dark as you can get up in the mountains. And uh, and really, yeah, it's just a, like a stunning difference when you're able to get out further uh, and and make some uh, some more clear observations. It's just you know the the level of magnitude of stars that you're able to reveal just in a dark night is so much more crisp and clear. Uh, it's it's just like a it's a total difference. So it was cool to uh, I, I think I first was able to spot just a little fuzzy bit uh, of a second magnitude uh, version of comet Neowise while I was here in town, but I tried to make a special trip out toward Eastern Oregon, out into the desert, just to do some camping stuff. But uh, what I wanted to do at the same time was make some good observations and, and also try and get some good photographs of Comet Neowise as it was coming through during its period uh, where you could you could make some, some good sightings of it. But it was cool. So going out to Eastern Oregon, as it got dark, a little past 1030 or so, as you look to the northwest, you could really see co- the comet and its tail spread for a a couple inches in the sky and i was really surprised to notice how little of it you could really make out or see uh, when you're in an area of, of almost any light pollution once you're back in town or once you're in a lower elevation area with some light pollution and haze around it was really difficult to make out in the same way that i could out in the desert or out in the mountains and so i thought that was uh, pretty cool to get to get to see and and uh, get to check out over there but uh yeah it was a blast getting to do some stuff uh out in eastern Oregon, I went over to the John Day River area, 
and I was uh, checking out that area. There's a lot of public land out in that area, but there's also some a lot of private land too. It's just kind of an interesting area how it's sort of broken up and. Um, it was cool to get to go out, go out to, though. I headed out to Madras, and then I took off and headed over east of there until I ran into the John Day River. And then I was able to use uh, this map that I have to go through and find some of the open off, or just the, the open roads that are, uh, you know, the smaller gravel roads that are set up to kind of traverse the backcountry out there. So I was able to find a few of those that were open and travel around on those for a while. And that was pretty cool. I was able to find some dispersed campsites and set up right along the John Day River, uh, which was really cool. It's a beautiful area out there. It's kind of interesting. The John Day River flows through uh, this sort of, I guess it would be, I don't know, it's kind of like canyon land, and it's also sort of these rolling grass hills that sort of make up the landscape of of northern northern and northeastern Oregon. And I think, uh, yeah, as soon as you kind of get a little bit for like a little bit north of Bend is when you get out of the Great Basin area uh, and you start to get into another kind of landscape that seems to stretch up uh, north of the Columbia River up into Washington. I've heard that some of it's uh, from like really old uh, deposits from the river systems and the waterways that were up there and and how like there's old, old, old deposits and then and then erosion that's happened from. Uh, those rivers running through the area for such a long time, but uh, but really cool to see kind of the rolling hills and then some of the carved out canyons that go through the John Day uh, River area up there. When I found the campsite I was at, I was pretty far away from everybody, and I was I was really uh, far away from any uh, substantial town. I think it was near. I don't know. I don't even know what it is. There wasn't anything there when I drove through. There was a bridge and and a couple little ranch houses, uh, you know, real ranches, right? Like a, a, just a little t- a little a little house, like a little two-bedroom house, and then a hundred acres of, of cattle <laughs> to deal with. So uh, it seems uh, it seems like another life out there. I wonder how they're dealing with, uh, you know, kind of the way of the world as things are this summer. But uh, it was cool, yeah, getting out there. Uh, went uh, to, or yeah, kind of set up my campsite and stuff, had my truck going, and that was all pretty easy going. But then I waited till dark after 10.30. Yeah, Comet Neowise was really visible up below the Big Dipper, that was pretty cool to get to see out there in Eastern Oregon. Really bright, really clear. You could almost make out the second tail. I had my binoculars with me, and I think there's some 10 by 42s, and those worked really well to view it, uh, to view the the comet. Um, looked really crisp through the through the binoculars, and yeah, really easy to spot most of the night. Even just to the naked eye, it was really easy to spot. It was just like, oh yeah, it's right there. There's the comet. It's just a a big wisp in the sky. Uh, so it was really cool to get to view it. What I did is I set up my tripod, and I have my camera with me. And so I set it up with a really wide angle, and then I was trying to get some photographs of it as it was, as the comet was sort of uh, coming down to set uh, on the landscape of the hillside, you know, as the hours went on into the night. So I think I, I stayed out until maybe 1 or 2 in the morning when the Big Dipper was sort of uh, scooping down a little low onto the horizon. And then at that point, the the place where the comet was dipped below the horizon and then was uh, out of view for the rest of the evening and I think even into the morning. I think by that time when I was photographing it, it wasn't it wasn't visible any longer uh, up in the morning sky. I think they said that, you know at first in early July you could kind of view it around Capella if you were able to get out early enough, say three or four in the morning. But as it, as the direction as it was moving, it was kind of creeping up 
um, pretty quickly, you know, day over day over day, it would kind of move a good chunk through the sky. And in the direction that it was moving, it was moving to be more visible at the nighttime, which really offered uh, more hours of good observation time, which I thought was pretty cool uh, to wait until it was really dark enough in the northwest uh, view of the sky. Probably about 10.30 onward is when you're finally able to make out uh, those kind of finer points of light in the sky in that region. Uh, so it was really cool. Set up the tripod, set up the camera, uh, set up some manual focus to uh, to get it kind of set sharp at night. You know, you can't you can't use autofocus when you're trying to make photographs of the, the night sky and the stars because it just kind of seeks back and forth. So you have to set it to manual focus and then uh, ring out your um, your focus ring to infinity and then just back a little bit. You'll notice this every time if you do it. It's really frustrating in the dark because you can't really always make it out in, a, in an easy way and, and edit your mistake uh, quickly. But if you go all the way to infinity and then take fi pictures there of the night sky, you're going to notice that those points of light that are the stars sort of end up a little fuzzy. And it's because all the way to infinity, for whatever reason, just isn't quite in focus at infinity. So you have to go all the way out to infinity and then back it off just a little bit. And that'll nearly ensure that most of that part of the image is in focus the whole way. And it's difficult, even, even if you do have uh, an f-stop that's a little bit more tightened out, say like an f4 or f6 or something, you're still going to get a lot of that, that out-of-focus softness if the focus ring isn't really dialed into the right spot. So I tried to work on that a little bit. And, uh, yeah, dialed in my focus, was able to set it up with uh, a reasonable ISO to get some images of the night sky and, and pick up some of those finer points of light. And then I was able to, to take a series of photographs uh, in a few different locations out there in the John Day River Valley, uh, which I thought was really cool. It was, it was uh, pretty to be out there, and it was a nice night, really warm in the River Canyon and, uh, and really remote, too. Like I was mentioning, I think I was the only person out there for a few miles. I saw... Another another group coming in on a they had like a little midsize uh, SUV and they were going fishing out at a bend in the river a couple miles up from where I was and so I took my truck down a little further and, and camped out just on the side of the river it was cool nice uh, green river up to the kind of high desert tan rim rock that uh, runs the area around there uh, so it was a, it was a cool evening cool campsite area it's cool spot to check out Comet Neo wise too. So I tried to check it out uh, up up until, I don't know, what, you know, 1.30 in the morning when I couldn't see it anymore. And then uh, spent the night out there, out in the John Day River area. And then the next morning got up and tried to check out some of the, the different roads and stuff that, that went around. You can check out more information at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. But some of the stuff is going up on Instagram. It's a photograph of uh, the uh, Alvord Desert. It was one that I was, I was working on in Luminar. And that was from a, um, 
a raw file that I had from the A7R when we were out in the out in the desert, out in the Alvor back in September. And uh, there's like a couple of photos from there that I've been trying to work on a bit more. But through this software called Luminar that I was telling you about, it's like Luminar 2018. It's this update to some software that's been around for a long time. And it's uh, kind of, well, I don't know, a couple of years. It's a newer software. And it's uh, it's definitely got like that modern Mac OS interface system. Kind of like, the you know, how I was showing you some of the stuff in the new Final Cut. How there's some of those button interfaces. Yeah, it looked really similar in the layout. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's similar in it and just sort of the way that it operates and hides certain features. But uh, but it was kind of interesting. It's a lot like the Lightroom system. Like in Lightroom right now, how we have the develop module. It's really a lot of the features that we'd see in the develop module, but really not the type of, of categorization system that we'd have in the, in the library module of Lightroom. And that's, I think, some of the stuff that Luminar is really lacking in right now. Where Luminar really does succeed is like a lot of the options in photo editing and uh, like kind of specific um, or sort of unique editing filters that you can add to the develop module on the side for some of the adjustments that you can make, like um, just some of the ways you can add luminance or brightness or soft glow or, or just different pieces like that. Uh, the software is kind of able to, to provide a lot of different, different ways to add adjustments and stuff to the photographs. And there's been some really interesting stuff that I've been trying to make or, you know, like kind of, kind of coming up with different edits of some of the old photographs that we had just kind of gone through in Lightroom. That's cool. You've been checking it out. I haven't spent any time in it yet. You're doing a, is it like a 14 day trial? Yeah. I picked up, um, yeah, from the website, you can go and get a 14 day trial for the software. Uh, I think in the, the, the Mac app store, you don't really see a, an option for that, but I think you see, uh, just for sale, I think it's like fifty nine ninety nine or sixty nine ninety nine. Uh, there's probably a sale going on for Cyber Monday or, or uh, Black Friday, um, but uh, but it's been interesting software, and it's you know it's been cool to use. I've been kind of um, I've been curious to see what other things besides Lightroom are going to pop up, and so we see like Affinity Photo, we see Luminar, we see Pixelmator. Uh, you know, there's Capture One and there's a few other kind of uh, kind of pro options out there. A lot of them, though, outside of Capture One, um, a lot of them are, are lacking like the the content management or the uh, the digital asset management side of it. Oh, right. I can't remember if it was Luminar or a different one that you had shown me. But yeah, it seemed more like uh, like Photoshop almost where you like you take the file in and you process the file, but it doesn't store your set of photos that you're working yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it was, it was for batch editing or, you know, like take, taking a thing, you know, kind of like how we, it, there's a little bit of batch editing stuff, but it still seems clumsy in comparison to the, to the tool set and workflow that you have in Lightroom. So really it seems like you would, you would still need Lightroom in some capacity to sort of organize some of your photographs in a way, at least like right now. Lightroom is really great for that. Yeah. What, of what there is right now for the version that i have right now i'm still very way way happy with the the workflow that i have for the time being so i have no need to like upgrade to the creative cloud version that's that's the current one that's causing problems uh, yeah. so i'm happy to keep the old version of lightroom and then in some capacity like update some of my raw processing stuff out on the outside of that to luminar where i get to kind of take advantage of some of the the more modern processing techniques that are available in something like luminar or something like pixelmator or something like Affinity, like some just the different preset packages and, and mess around with some of the new creative stuff that's kind of new and modern for photography in 2018 as it's going to be. Um, it's kind of, it's cool to be able to test that out 
but it's also nice to really be able to keep Lightroom around in the background. Yeah. And uh, and just have that have that there to organize stuff. Like even just like what I was talking about of um, like this big project I had of, of you know kind of trusting it to transfer 600 gigabytes of photographs through the computer and then onto a second hard drive and then categorize those under a file name by by day, date, and year. I just wouldn't really trust like software like Luminar to do that. It's not capable of anything like that, like you were talking about. It can just take one graphic file in at a time, process it, and then save that out as a graphic file. But it's not even like that same kind of non-destructive system where you, you work on it for a while and then you just leave the program and it's saved. Those edits, those adjustments to the photograph are saved non-destructively to the file. It's still non-destructive editing, but you still, you have to save it as like a project file. So like ultimately, instead of like just a single catalog where you would go through a lot of images, if you were working in Luminar more exclusively, you would have a folder of your photographs or photo projects, let's say, and you would have a photo, like a Photoshop file, but a Luminar file that was the image with the adjustments set aside to it. It's a really big file too. It's like with these like 45, 50 megabyte A7R photos, it's like a 70 megabyte file. That's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So my poor little 100 gigabyte hard drive is uh, is choking. <laughs> so it's, uh, I don't know, it's okay. Um, but the Luminar stuff, it's been cool to, cool to work with. I'm going to try and do some screen capture stuff with it. And with that, just kind of thinking about doing screen capture stuff, it's been making me think about screen capture stuff and trying to figure out how to do it. And I didn't really know how to do screen capture work before. And just pretty quickly, I just figured out like uh, from people, you know, everywhere saying it, that you can just use QuickTime, the QuickTime player on the Mac to do that. And it works really well. Like I, I pulled up QuickTime and then you go like file, start new screen capture. And then you click on the monitor that you want to start recording and you can kind of set some commands around if, the, if it's going to show the mouse click or mouse capture at all. And so I was able to do that. I don't know. I was able to practice a couple of times and make some screen captures. And uh, I want to try and transition that over to some of the stuff that we were talking about of like similar to this right now, like record audio like we're doing in the podcast, but then run a screen capture on the background while we're working in something like Luminar while we're going through one of the photographs that we have from, you know, some place that we were at. And then we can show some of the adjustments and some of the ways of working in Luminar and making adjustments and then saving a file out. And then we can put that up as content on YouTube or, you know, other than, yeah, YouTube. That's where I went, Facebook or something <laughs> too. You know, they take videos. Yeah, that's really so, cool that you figured out uh, the screen capture stuff. It's awesome. It's so easy. Yeah, it, you know, it will be easy for us. For at least this kind of screen capture. Yeah, I'm hoping that I can try and uh, put some work into it and uh, and make some of the stuff, you know, sort of basic, but uh, but kind of easy to put together. And if it's as easy as this, like, of um, you know, just doing the podcast and doing it in the studio and having the audio and stuff running, um, yeah, it should be a good way to, to put together some some good image editing pieces for something like Luminar. I, I, was, I was scanning around on YouTube, and there's really a pretty limited amount of good of good introductory videos for some of this stuff. There's some that the company itself has put out and those are pretty good, oh, but yeah. some of the stuff on the outside of it, just the, the photography and the advice and the, the direction of editing and stuff around Luminar or around Affinity. Um, some of the training tutorial videos I saw around it are just, they're kind of goofy and you don't really see like what's going on or, you know, you just kind of end up with some kind of crazy image. That's it's just sort of <laughs> some kind of quick. Oh, easy, sure. Not how to, not how to do real editing, but just, 
if you crank this tool, this is the part that it's affecting. That's what it seemed like they ended up showing. I understand the idea that like when you're, you're screen capturing and trying to figure out how to make something artistic, it doesn't really go together so well. So you kind of have to have to do it like uh, Martha Stewart a little bit and have the two ovens going at the same time. So as soon as you put the pie in the oven to bake, then you pull out the pie that's already cooked, right? Like, so you already, you have to have a couple pieces already done, uh, in advance. But, um, but yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of funny watching some of this stuff as, uh, um, it just doesn't seem like it's really developed yet. So yeah, I want to try and put together some of the stuff around, uh, our cool photos, our, uh, our outdoor photos. Yeah. Trying. I think that's cool to get into. Do some landscape tutorials or something. If I can figure out how to edit, it might be just good practice for me to learn how to edit some photographs. I don't really edit enough. Uh, I don't do enough retouching, you know, oh, to like sure. really practice my skill to like hone the, the craft of retouching. I don't know how it was for you, like doing a bunch of the wedding stuff. Like it's a lot of retouching to do, but just like the advancement of like getting better at retouching or, you know, I feel like my retouching skills are something that have definitely improved. I think it's like other kinds of editing that I want to get into or just the more, the more stylized way of putting, not, not in a gross way. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm really thinking about, but I'm trying to just get more more refined in yeah in how I'm putting my photos together but retouching specifically pretty good at because <laughs> wedding yeah. photos are great practice yeah. oh yeah I'm sure I'm sure you get like a ton of practice in that but I want to try more too and that's that's why I'm messing around with Luminar and but really there's so much I can do in Lightroom still or you know it's just kind of practicing retouching and kind of working toward doing a better job at putting the files together and making them nicer going back over some of the old ones and I want to try and do a little bit more to like rough draft photos or, you know, like, Oh, oh this is a, mean? well, just like, this is a rough draft of the edit. So I could go through and Lightroom. Oh, sure. And I, so you I, do like your first set of editing and then you. Yeah. Then I, to it. I look at it and then I should edit it, kind of redline it a little bit, you know, see like, Oh, this is good. This is bad. Or I see this, I see this grading. This light doesn't look natural. So some of that sort of stuff is the, uh, the thing I should work on. Yeah. I noticed that that helps me a lot to go, to like kind of come back to things a few times before they're done. I'd like to try and do that a little bit more. I should try and take it more seriously, like the editing part. Editing and publishing part, I want to try and jump on more. It's winter time now. I got to put in more. Uh, it's a good time for studio hours. More studio hours is what more I got to do. Time. Way more editing time. So for, uh, for the Luminar stuff that you have gotten to do, um, how is its editing compared to Lightroom? Um, like for for the parts of it that would be similar or comparable tools? Like, do you notice one seeming like it's better? Or do you notice what, like, is Lightroom still just the best thing that there is? Yeah, an old or version of Lightroom is still the best that there is. Yeah, an old version of Lightroom, I think, is. It's, it's really what it feels like right now. I mean, apparently there's some stuff in 2018 that's supposed to handle more like um of the I'm the sure there'll import. be a bunch of stuff coming out. Yeah. It's it's the digital asset management part that's not really built yet. Sure. And um and and that's but, the thing that's gonna be built, I guess, in two thousand eighteen coming out by some of these software companies. Yeah. And that's when we're gonna be able to see like which one might be better. But really as it stands right now, it be it still seems like Lightroom. For how about for like the actual photo editing part though, or what I what you're able to do. Yeah, the for editing the, of an image, not so much organization. Of for photos. the yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, 
and going through there, there's, there's interesting stuff that you can do. Uh, I know it's a new tool to learn also. So there's probably an amount of just getting used to it. There's that part too. You know, when in 1992, 93, when Photoshop first came out, you see like, um, oh you gosh. see the, the art from, from that, the photography art from then. And it was yes. just like these insane rasterized images that didn't make any sense. So it, some pretty freaky pictures. Yeah, it, it, it was just like uh, all the colors were like transposed into like these weird, super hard, like greens and reds and yellows. I remember lots of yellows. It, it was just if you cranked, if you cranked everything to one side and it was just like, oh, yeah, right, just really we got harsh. it. Look at that. But it was just the it was just because they didn't know what to do with it yet, so they did the most with it. Sure, yeah. And it was bad. And then like <laughs> since then they like pulled back a lot, and so now like it looks like real life, or they're like like they're building something digital to look real. You know, it's like the, the artistic part of it's back, where you just kind of you're just using the same thing to to try and lay in the same type of artistic principles that you would anywhere else. So part of that is to say, in the same way, as we're coming into these new tools and people are learning these new tools, like like HDR was back in 2007, it's like mm. too hard sometimes. So similarly with some of this stuff, it's a little bit too hard on the editing side. And uh, I noticed that with Lightroom for years, like, you know, when Lightroom came out and with my own photos, when I'd edit them, there's just like, you know, there's just too much, there's just a little too much pressure, like a little too much gain or something on the signal. Like it was just about to break up. Mm. That's what it felt like sometimes. So I don't know. That's just sort of like the immaturity of the photographer myself in this case and, uh, and kind of how to understand how to use the tools. But as it goes, the final answer of it is that any of these tools can really result in the same outcome of great work. You know, like what you would know too. It's like, uh, it's just the artistic side of learning how to use some of these really basic tools to make more simple and refined adjustments to some spots that, make the image a little bit more powerful. Like trying to do basic stuff like crop or color correction or, um, or like a little bit of, of tone curve stuff, you know, like make it brighter, make it a little bit more contrasty. That's sure. about all you can really do. I, I think there's, there's different layers and there's different heavy amounts of presets and hue grading, like whatever, whatever that stuff is of the, the forest photos with no green. Mm -hmm. yeah. there's, there's that, I guess that you can add. But I really think that like a lot of it should be pretty slight adjustments that are there to try and like add to the photo in some way. And okay. I think that those you can do in any of these softwares, you know, in, in any control panel of adjustments on the side, you can, you can export to anything that like would really, that would work pretty well. But in the same way, it's just like a new flavor of a thing to do, or it's a new workflow that kind of breaks up some of the old crusty habits that I've had in the past. Yeah. Like that's how it is with Lightroom, trying to go from Lightroom to Luminar or, you know, and just, and just messing with it. Capture One, not a chance. It was way too complicated, way too kludgy of a, of an interface system there. Maybe for a pro that was really into that system, they could do it. it I'm not required to, I'm not tied down to it at all. So it just seemed like this would be a waste of time ultimately for me to like really put a ton of pressure into if it's really not a more productive tool for me to get something done. Yeah. You follow what I mean? Like, yeah. It's like, this just seems like hard and complicated. Yeah. Not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit, I don't have a capture one or I don't have the phase one medium format camera, you know? Yeah. If you, if, if I dropped, got a, a, the, you know, some insane camera dropped off, I guess I'd try and mess with that software more, you know, cause it's like proprietary to it. 
But yeah. outside of that, uh, you know, no, I don't need it. And I and I didn't buy the pro software either. So um, I guess, you know, this, this, the decision was made for me. As it goes, though, with uh, using like Lightroom and Luminar, I don't know, the editing stuff, it works really well. I've been digging the Luminar stuff because it's a little bit of a way to break up some of the editing choices that I was making in Final Cut or, or sorry, in Lightroom continually. And so changing that part up has been a good way to do stuff. Like I like the photograph that I, uh, that I put together the Alvord desert over here, um, from one of the raw files that we shot out in the Alvord with the A7R. And, uh, it was like, you know, during sunset and I was able to kind of pull in some of the warmth. The, the original photo was kind of great. You remember the day out there, the Alvord was a little bit gray. It was a little low on color and low on warmth and stuff. Right. I was able to pull a lot of that back into, uh, to the raw file, you know, to, to the image when I was editing it. And I kind of, I just like the way that some of it came out. So I really like how that one came out. The colors look really nice and natural. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. like it's, it's well put together. It, yeah. As, as photo editing software did, that goes, it did fine. It works nicely. It comes together, you know, pretty well. So I was happy with that. But uh, yeah, some of the batch editing stuff, it's got a long way to go. Some of the resizing stuff, it did fine. Or, you know, like uh, just just setting up kind of the export file, the export system of what, what oh, you can yeah. do to the file on the way out. That's a little bit reduced from some of the bigger options that you have in Lightroom. Lightroom has a ton of option variations to get into yeah. for exporting. Yeah. So like the workflow that I have at work, like outside of an artistic workflow where you're trying to take a choice image and then make adjustments to it to make it its best and then export that as like a piece of art. Outside of that kind of workflow, like what I do on the production side of taking a few hundred stock photos of equipment and trying to process that, like batch process it and batch export it, this sort of software would just be no good because you'd still, you kind of can do batch processing, but it's real clumsy. It's nothing like what you would really expect if you're trying to do it efficiently or, you know, properly. And that's kind of a tricky thing. So I don't know. We'll see like what they, they kind of develop over time. But like I would never want to switch over from Lightroom to something like this if I were trying to do batch processing and exporting of all the production work that I do. It would never oh, work as that, you know, like, not. yeah, because like to take to grab 30 photos and then export those and have the export resize all 30 of those to whatever long width of it and whatever file type into whatever directory of a folder it just, I don't have the option to do that in some of the Luminar stuff. I can like edit the photo, sort of like you were talking about, like edit the photo in Photoshop, make some adjustments, but not really any healing brush adjustments. You can kind of get by with healing brush, but like the healing brush stuff, it works way better in Photoshop. Like the content aware healing, mm -hmm. way more effective than probably, I mean, like it's just Adobe. They've been doing it for 30 years trying to figure out how to do that technology. And they're way better than probably anybody at the algorithm that, that does the cloning tool stuff. I'm amazed at like some of the stuff they can do. So you can, you can kind of get by in Luminar if you need to like clone something out, but it's still a little tough. It's like, it's, it's still a little patchy. Yeah. I remember <laughs> like the, the cloning out tool that Lightroom has or that like really basic one, like really oh, yeah. just started being yeah. good. Yeah. Not that long ago. Exactly. Yeah. It was bad. It was really bad. I remember it being frustrating. Yeah, that's the only thing. I always thing. had to use Photoshop. I always had to bring it into Photoshop. Yeah, one time just to do 
a yeah, little bit of work. Touch up piece. Yeah, <laughs> just some little tiny things. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. My workflow is completely different now. I really just only use Lightroom. Yeah. I right? almost never like I did a lot of basic but um but like necessary uh like retouching and stuff for wedding photos. Yeah. And uh just like stuff on skin and stuff uh or like things in the background and really like it gets the textures of thing and the t- colors or like the the shading just in the patch yeah so so well now it's really impressive like you can do so much with retouching just in lightroom now I'm, I'm and way, i used yeah. to i remember i used to i had a friend who's a makeup artist and i used to help him with photo shoots for his projects and I would do a lot of retouching for those shots afterwards. And I always had to take them into Photoshop because Lightroom couldn't do like just little basic skin retouching things. Wow. Yeah. I remember Not that too. Not in a good way. I, rem- <laughs> I know. I know. I could never do it. And yeah, it's gotten much, much better. Like the, the healing yeah, brush tool has gotten now. much better. Um, so I'm sure it's probably better even still in like the more advanced versions than the, the few years old version of Lightroom that we're running right now. And I hear that there's other tools, like I hear Pixelmator is really quite good for the healing system like that. And I hear, um, what was the other one? I don't know. I think it maybe it's Pixel. It might be Pixelmator, but I hear that that's, or maybe it's Affinity, but one of those softwares is the one to use for like your 3D images. Like if you're getting like 3D photos or something, you have one of those, uh, the, or I'm sorry, not 3D, the, the 360 degree cameras. Oh yeah. Where you're recording like a spherical image. Yeah. And you like stitch it. Yeah, I guess you can stitch it in this program and then you can do you can do some of the healing brush stuff around like the base of it where the camera is. Uh-oh. Like, you know, like a 360, like say you were to look around, you can look up like but straight up. There's going to be like a, a, a dot. It's going right. to be like a gray dot where there's no data. And then like straight down, there's going to be the same thing where some of the data's come together. And so I guess like this, this is the software that works even better than Photoshop right now to work on these 360 image environments where you can go through. And like pull the image around and then use the healing brush on one of those spots and then have it close that out. And then you can render that out as a, as a 360, uh, like file to what, I don't even know what file type that is. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, and then edit it from, or, you know, work on it and, and use it from there. But that's how like they're producing some of these files. Interesting. That's cool. I want to try and learn a little bit about that. Like, and also like, uh, and how that 360 stuff relates to the stock photography market. I was looking at that a little bit, like um, when you look at iStock photo or Storyblocks, which um, takes like video and audio and photo. And then there's like Pond5. There's a handful of other like uh, stock photo systems out there. But a lot of the stock photography sites, they're talking about a need for these 360 environments for like people that are doing VR development, that sort of thing. So they need these fi- these these stock files to build their VR environments with like good produced or, you know, well-produced 360 images. I was trying to figure out. Like, oh, that's oh, so wow. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think like, Oh, I wonder how like we could do that sort of on the side of doing other landscape stuff, but you know, go out to places and then do get like 360 footage and then edit or, you know, like do just like some of the simple production stuff of it and then put it up on some of these stock sites that it, where it's like in need to get this type of 360 content. Yeah where there's already so much of a flood of landscape work in stock as right. it goes. Huge amount. Yeah. So we like that, Very but much. I'm trying to think of like content and media work that's sort of around 
like maybe we're not going to get paid for landscape photos for a little bit. So, but maybe we can make stock 360 photos yeah. <laughs> and make a little bit of money because there's not enough of those right now. And then, and then use that as an excuse to go on trips out to Eastern Oregon and, and make photos of Fort Rock or, you know, somewhere cool in Lake sure. County, but we're, but we're making a, some 360 photos or th- some 360 content or something like that. That's uh, that, you know, goes up on one of these stock sites, but it's just kind of a fun side idea. So yeah. we can try in the springtime, maybe. That's interesting. I didn't know that that was a, a part of the stock photography need now. It seems like it's coming into a lot of stuff around VR. Yeah. VR is really big. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of stuff around VR and a lot of drone footage oh, is, man, is I'm in super demand. into the drone stuff. I want to drone really badly this next year. We should try and get an inexpensive drone. We should try and take it to some spots to get some good basic stock footage of uh sure. of some good stuff outside yeah like the places that we go you know all that stuff would be great to get uh, 360 and like aerial drone stuff but you know like that's what i was thinking it's like man i bet we could run a business really if if we just try to book ourselves to do like even just stock yeah, trips to do like footage. 360 and uh and aerial drone footage that goes up onto stock sites as we like populated it in like a pretty significant effort to produce and produce, produce, but yeah. you know, like one of the trips we made or something like that. Yeah. If we did that two or three days a week, wherever we were going, you know, and like, uh, like we took off to you know somewhere and, and, you know, worked out of a hotel for a couple of days and made some aerial shots and some 360 shots sort of a thing. And then edited them and put them up from, uh, you know, whatever. We'd probably be like some of the first people to make 360 and aerial content of a lot of these outdoor places. That'd be so cool. I'm really into that. Yeah. I think the 360 stuff is a cool idea. Yeah. And I've been, yeah, I've been on board for the drone stuff. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. We need a couple grand. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we, we need some bucks. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. But I, I really want to try and do that. Yeah. I was, I was thinking, like, wow, yeah, we'd probably make some of the first, especially under the scope of being like cinematography. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's probably a handful of things that are going up, but it's, it's probably not as much like shot. Or, you know, like, like a photo photography level yeah. work. And uh, I think that we could probably excel in that pretty quickly if we were, uh, if we were jumping in there. But first, we should get our toes wet. And this winter, we should try and put up, like, a portfolio of at least 100 of our images and try and go through and, like, learn about it. Like, put up the photos into a stock library, try and tag them and title them and get them, like, in there, get our account going, get our, just get, get it figured yeah, out. You know what I mean? get familiar with how. Yeah other system works yeah and then see like oh yeah okay this is the sort of stuff that we're seeing in 360 video right now but i know it's probably going to be maybe not a fat i think it's really going to be like something content related to virtual reality virtual reality is going to be really necessary and that could be static photos like it's been it could be like 360 video it could be a lot of different things but it's kind of interesting that um it's just like a new thing that's sort of opening up uh, so we should try it. It'd be fun. There's probably like a need for it somewhere on the West Coast. And uh, I don't know. Maybe we can get paid for it someday. That'd be cool. We'll be so on the on the edge, Marina. <laughs> That's what we got to do. We got to be on the cutting edge. Cutting edge of VR. Ooh. Stock photography. <laughs> I'm in. That sounds cool. We can put it on a resume, Marina, that we make. We're, we're VR content developers. Yeah. Ooh. Sounds great. Yeah, it's a good, hey, it's going to be real, Marina. It's already the yokels here. around here. They don't know, but we know. Oh gosh, we know, Marina. We gotta stay ahead. We gotta stay ahead. We gotta do it. But I think that's probably everything uh, I got going on for uh, 
for this episode of this podcast. What about you, Marina? I think that wraps it up pretty well. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some, some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.